This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. I am excited. Now, understand this. I get excited whenever I get to stand and preach God's Word, because there's no greater privilege in the world. I am excited, however, a little bit more today, almost like a kid at Christmas. And I don't know about y'all, but other than all the junk that goes, I love Christmas. Christmas is an exciting time, and I, and I get excited as that year rolls around every year. So yes, today I'm excited like a kid at Christmas this morning, because this morning we've come to the place in Revelation that I have been anticipating now for months. We have preached the word through Revelation. We've looked at Revelation. We've looked at the seven churches, the celebrations in heaven. The rejoicing in heaven. And then all of a sudden we moved for several chapters to the planet earth. As God unfolded his time of judgment upon a world that has rejected him. And we saw seven sealed judgments opened. We saw seven trumpet judgments proclaimed. And we saw seven bowl judgments poured out on the earth. And let's face it, those were difficult chapters to get through. Yet that is actually what is coming for those who reject Christ. We saw in chapter 17 and 18 the great world system that is godless, separated from God, godless religion and godless economic situations. We saw God bring those down. Then last week we enjoyed celebrating. We celebrated as we saw this godless world system crumbled. We celebrated with the church resurrected and raised at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is the bride of Christ. But today, this is is exciting. Today, we're getting to the part of Revelation that we're all anticipating. Whether you even know it or not, because in every human spirit, understand, we talked about this in Sunday school. God has created every human being and hardwired every human being to have a desire to know God and to walk with him. We are created in his image and God has created us and placed within us, according to Ecclesiastes chapter three, a heart for eternity. All of those feelings of dissatisfaction that you feel, all of those feelings of sadness, as though you're missing something, almost a sense of homesickness. That is because you were created, I was created, to know God and to be with Him. That is what those are all about. And we try to fill them with things. We buy cars, we buy houses. We try to go out and have experiences. We try to have relationships. We think that this thing or that person will fill it and and, and cause it to to be fulfilled. But they don't at the end of the day. Because the only thing, as Pascal once said, the only thing that can fill the God shaped vacuum within our heart and life, that heart made for eternity, is God Himself. And all the scrambling and all the scraping and all the struggling, trying to get things, trying to move forward, trying to, trying to grab that gold ring without Christ is futile. But this morning we're going to see when it all comes together. And like I said, I'm today like a kid at Christmas because I get the holy privilege and I don't deserve it to preach this passage or any of the Bible for that matter, but this passage. And speaking of Christmas, one of the Christmas songs I love And I love them all. I love Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. I think that's hysterical. 
There's one song I hate though. My daughter led me to hate this song. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. They use that in communist countries to torture people, okay? But there's one song I do love, and that's joy to the world. I mean, you can go to the mall at Christmas time, and you can be shopping and running. And if you stood in the middle of the mall and started singing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, you would get a crowd, and they'd sing with you, I guarantee it. Even people who aren't necessarily believers will jump in. They know that song, they'll sing it. Every church on the planet at some point in some language will sing Isaac Watts' song, Joy to the World. But you know the irony of that? Joy to the World, Isaac Watts, when he wrote that and penned that, it's not a Christmas song. It's not a Christmas song. That's the most amazing aspect of it. Joy to the World was never meant to be sung at Christmas time per se. Because if you read the lyrics to all the verses, it's not talking about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. That, now that does elicit joy and we should celebrate that. But when he says, joy to the world, the Lord has come, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Isaac Watts, when he wrote this song, was just moved because this isn't really a Christmas song. As a matter of fact, when Isaac Watts wrote this in the 18th century, he based it on Psalm 98. At that time, churches mainly sang psalms put to music. There weren't, mu there weren't many hymns back in the 18th century. There are a few, but most churches sang the psalms from the Old Testament and they would put them to popular tunes. Isaac Watts got bored with that. And he went to his father and his father said, well, son, if you're bored with it, do something about it. God bless our parents. And so Isaac Watts sat down and penned this piece. Joy to the world, we sing it every Christmas. And he based it upon Psalm 98. And a portion of that Psalm, Psalm 98, it says this. It says, let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers Clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Let heaven and nature sing, as it were. The psalm goes on to say, For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the people with equity. Psalm, one, psalm 98. He wrote this and put it out there. Some in the church called him a disturber because he was messing with the status quo. But the song Joy to the World is a celebrative song, and it's, it's an exciting song. And while Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, as we're going to celebrate in a few months, is exciting, he was focusing on his second coming. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. Revelation chapter 19. In a prelude leading up to this passage, we see the celebration of the fall of the godless world system, godless religion. Godless governments, godless business, godless economy. In other words, everything that you see in the world that is unjust, unkind, untrue, will one day come down. If you've ever been ripped off, if you've ever been betrayed, if you've ever been at the wrong end of the stick, all of that is going to be made right. Justice is coming. God is going to bring down the system that oppresses. And we saw again, as we mentioned earlier, the celebration is the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. 
robed in gowns made from the righteousness of the saints, as they served and honored Christ, the righteous acts of the saints, that'll be a celebration. And then, as we jump into chapter 19 and verse 11, we see the event that everything has been moving toward. Ever since Adam and Eve were created, ever since King David was on the throne, when Moses brought the law, ever since the prophets proclaimed the Messiah returning, ever since Jesus came, died on the cross, paid for our sins, was rose, risen again from the dead, ever since the, the prophets and the apostles preached, the refrain has been over and over, he came and he will come again. And so this morning we are going to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming back. He said he would. Not only that, but the prophets said he would. The apostles said he would. But most importantly, Jesus said he would. And as we think of that song that Isaac Watts wrote, joy to the world, that is joy that is really going to be palpable tangible because all that's gone on everything that has happened will find its culmination its fruition its climax in this moment jesus christ is coming back so yes not only sing but shout joy to the world let's look at it chapter 19 we see right here christ's second coming look at verse 11 john here says now i saw heaven open this is only the second time that John says this. He says this all the way back in Revelation chapter 4 in verse 1 where John said he was taken up in the spirit and he saw heaven opened before him. And then John witnessed all the things that would go on in heaven and earth. And then again, the second time right now, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse now we saw a white horse back in chapter 6 but that was an, a counterfeit the Antichrist who would come and be a counterfeit of all that Jesus is and was and will be, tried to ride on a white horse, was represented with a right white horse, but he made war. He was evil. We've covered him extensively, but this white horse, this is the true return of the Lord. And it says, and he sat on him. He who sat on him, notice, was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and make, makes war. So as we come to Jesus' second coming, he is coming again. Here it is. This is, for the Christian, this will be the ultimate Christmas celebration. Yes, Christ came the first time, but his coming was very subtle, very private. He didn't burst into heaven like lightning, as Matthew tells us. That will happen in the second coming. He came on a quiet winter's evening, appearing to shepherds. He was born in a, in a feeding trough, wrapped in grave clothes, swaddling clothes, and comforted by a young mother, only to be heralded by a choir of angels and a star. Ha <laughs> ha, but his second coming. His second coming is going to be something that the entire world will witness, and it will catch the world off guard. Because when Christ comes, the world will be engaged in a horrific battle we call or the Bible itself calls Armageddon. When all the armies of the world, when all the politicians and pundits, when all the, the, the countries will gather together for one final conflict, 
Jesus will come and interrupt that. You ever notice about Jesus in the gospel this morning? We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead in our Sunday school lesson. It seems like every time Jesus came to town, he seemed to be, he breaks up funerals. Well, Jesus is going to break up the world, last world war. And as we read the, the, the passage here, notice it says, he comes and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. One of the many names and titles Jesus has. Faithful and true. Why is he called that? Because every promise in the Bible from Genesis 3.18 all the way through to the end of Revelation will be fulfilled faithfully and truly. Everything that we heard of Jesus, not only of his first coming as he lived and, and died on the cross of Calvary, was buried and rose again, but the second coming is a faithful and true fulfillment of all those promises. Jesus Christ keeps his word. He keeps his word. He is faithful and he is true. As God, he is the center of faithfulness and truthfulness. And notice as he comes, when he came the first time on the cross, he came as a suffering savior. He came and it seemed like from the world's perspective, he was the victim. From the fleshly perspective, it seemed like he was defeated. As he hung beaten and bloodied, nailed to a cross of shame. The curse of mankind, all of human, humanity's sin thrown on him. And there he died. The demons rejoice. The saints wept. But then Jesus rose again from the dead. And the angels, as he was ascending into heaven, told his disciples who were looking at him with mouths agape, they said, don't worry about it. The same Jesus who's left you in this manner will come again in the same way. And here he is. Here he is. And this time, not as a suffering savior, but as the conquering king. Who will come with all his power as God in the flesh and end all of human conflict. He will end all human suffering. He will end all human inequity and indignity. That is what the second coming is about. It says he judges and makes war. He is coming as the king. So we see Jesus' second coming. And we see his sovereign character. He current character, he is literally God in the flesh. All that has gone on and will go on has gone on at his good pleasure. As we'll see a little bit later, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the only one with authority to make war and to judge. And so we see his sovereign character. He, he tells us in Matthew himself, these are Jesus' words, when he said, as, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, it is going to be the most spectacular Amazing, significant event in human history. Jesus is coming back. So that's why we should sing joy to the world. He came the first time. That's how we know he's coming back. Because the Old Testament and prophecy after prophecy promised the Messiah would come. That he would die. He would be, he would be striped. He would take wounds. He would be buried. He rose again from the dead. Read, read Psalm 22, 23, and 24 together. Which speaks of the death of the Messiah. 
which speaks of the ultimate shepherding of the Messiah and the raising of the Messiah. All of these things prophesied myriad passages in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled them exactly when he came the first time. And he said, I am coming back again. So you know it's true. Isaac Watts, that just led him to, 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 to pin the line, joy to the world. And what do we have to be joyful about? Well, we'll have joy because the Lord has come. He has come. Let's continue. We're going to talk about his appearance. Everybody today talks about what did Jesus look like? You know, oftentimes when you see Jesus portrayed in films or in paintings, especially in the earlier in this century, most paintings of Jesus, he, he was blonde-haired and blue-eyed. I don't get it. And some people say, well, Jesus was this. Listen, Jesus was, he was born a Jew in the Middle East. We don't have any renderings of Christ contemporary with the time he was on the earth because otherwise we'd be worshiping those. The fact of the matter is Jesus probably had olive-colored skin, brown eyes, and black hair. We do know that he had a beard because Isaiah prophesied that they would rip his beard out by the handfuls before he would be crucified to mock him. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you what Jesus looked like. All I can tell you is if you ever watch news programs or any videos and you see Middle Eastern men mulling about cities, he looked like one of those. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah that he had nothing devastatingly handsome about him that we would say, oh, that must be Jesus. Look at the guy, that one, which one? The one that's glowing. No, it didn't do that. Look at that. He's the only blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy there. Okay, no. It's not how it was either. Jesus was a Jew. But John in Revelation 1 gives us an amazing description of the glorified Christ. You go back and read that. And then as he's coming back to earth and the entire planet is visualizing this return. This is, this is his appearance. Look what it says. Verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Does that mean that fire was coming out of his eyes? Or was John analogizing the fact that his eyes were just stern and and, and, and set. I could say that about my father some days when he found out I had done something I shouldn't have done. I used to tell my people, my dad had Boris Karloff eyes. And some of you don't know who that is. You need to look him up. You can look at how, and look at his eyes, and that's the look I'd get. My dad had such a fierce and piercing stare that I would beg him to spank me, just quit looking at me. I'm dead serious. You can ask my brother and sister. Well, I was light. He was dark. He was big. He was imposing. And when he came and you did something wrong, you know you did it. And so Jesus is going to come. And his eyes will be like a flame of fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. In other words, he is the sovereign over all the universe. And as such, he is sovereign over all the nations on this planet, whether they recognize him or not. He is king over every, every human institution. He is sovereign over every government, even this government. And he has a name which is mysterious. And let's face it, there are aspects of Christ, aspects of God that we just don't know and don't understand. God hasn't seen fit to reveal them to us. But you know what? That's okay. That's all right. We don't have to know all the details. We have hot dog suppers every Wednesday night. I don't know what goes in those hot dogs. 
but Dan and his crew sure do a good job making them and I'll eat them. That's all right. If you and I knew what half the stuff was we were eating, we'd probably be in trouble. I don't know how a combustion engine works. Ask Buster. He knows I don't know how to fix anything. But I get in my car and drive it anyway. Till it breaks down and I have to, Buster, you know. So there's a tremendous amount of mystery there. And that's because God wants us to keep, keep following him, keep looking, keep chasing him. And even on a second coming, he comes, fiery eyes, many crowns, a mysterious name. It says in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That speaks of perhaps two things. The fact that he did take on our sin and that he bled and died for us on that cross. Yes, he's coming back the second time as the conquering king, but that's not before he suffered as the savior. And when he died, he died for every person in the sound of my voice, whether in this auditorium or online watching now or listening on the podcast, Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. His blood washed away your sins and my sins. And if we come to him by simple faith, trusting him as our savior, casting our full faith and confidence in him to take us to heaven, God saves us. Some people say, oh, you preach easy believism. No, there is no such thing. Because it may be easy for me to believe, but some people it's not. They're, they're bound by pride. But it wasn't easy for him to take my sin because he had none himself. And he bled so that I wouldn't have to. So yes, his robe is dipped in blood. But also that may be speaking of his judgment against those who have rejected him. As he then begins to judge and completes his judgment. He goes on to say this, he was clothed with that robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. That's so significant, the Word of God. You say, but pastor, that's what my Bible is called. That's right, because God produced two types of the Word. No contradiction, no difference. In your lap and on your device, you have the written Word of God. Paul says that that Word is God-breathed. In other words, in your lap and on your device, you have the very breath of God. It's a living document. And the word there means an expression or an impression. Even the words we speak and write are expressions and impressions of concepts and ideas and thoughts. Jesus Christ is the living word of God. He is the ultimate expression of God's love and of God's judgment. He is the ultimate expression of God himself. If you want to know what God was, who God was, you look to Jesus. What would God do? What would God say? Where would God go? Read the Gospels. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is called the Word of God. Now I want you to notice something else as we continue on. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him. Followed Him. We see not only His appearance, but we see His army. Followed Him on white horses. Who are these grand armies in heaven? Well, whenever the Bible speaks of the angelic host, Greek and Hebrew words both equal the same thing. They mean a military contingent. The word host, when you read it in Scripture, literally means an army. And so the angelic host will be returning with him. But not only that, 
But it seems to indicate that this will also include his saints. What are saints? Saints are anyone who trusts Christ as their Savior. Whether it's an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint. And in reality, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, you and I will be a part of this army. It's one of the few times that we are actually mentioned in Scripture. That we will accompany him as he returns to earth. We who know Jesus who will be caught up as he is doing the tribulation and then we will return with him as he steps into Jerusalem as King of Kings and Lord of Lords as victim. So this is his army. This is his army and that's his angelic host. It says in 1 John 3, 2, it's talking about us being a part of that. He says, we know. And this is John talking about we who are saints. This is John. He says, we know that when he is revealed, and he's speaking of his second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, when you and I die in Christ, we leave this old container behind. I don't know about you, but I'm thrilled with that. Every morning when I look in the mirror, I'm glad that I'm going to leave the empty behind. Because the Bible tells me that when I ascend to heaven, whether rapture or by death, God will give me a new and glorified body that will never hurt, never suffer, never struggle, never age, never stumble, never cough. That we will eternally exist with him and we will be like him. What does that mean? I honestly couldn't tell you. But as we see his glorified image, we will be somewhat like him. And we will come back with him. I tell you, I don't know about you, but that just gets me all excited. It puts every crummy thing in this world into perspective. The Lord has come. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. We see his image. We see his army. His appearance is going to be amazing. The next line of the song says, let earth receive her king. Because as I said earlier, Jesus is coming. He came the first time as a broken savior, suffering savior. But the second time he is coming as king, undeniably. We look at his triumph. Let's continue to read. He's coming back with his army. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Actual Greek uh, rendition of that would be a sharp two-edged sword. The word there speaks of a very long sword. And and, and people in Rome, uh, during the days when Rome was ruling, they would understand what he was talking about. This would be a rather lengthy sword that had two edges on it. The reason why is the soldier would ride in his horse And as he went to battle, he would be able to swing two different ways and still win over his adversary. And this is the kind of sword that this word brings out. It says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Out of his mouth. Well, interestingly enough, this is what the Bible is also referred to as well. Paul, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, when he talks about taking on the whole armor of God, One of the things that we take with us is the only offensive weapon we have, and that is the Word of God, which he says is a sharp two-edged sword. The book of Hebrews tells us that this sharp sword, which is the Word of God, is able to cut 
asunder between the soul and spirit, the thoughts and intents of the heart, the joints and the marrow. You see, he's coming to judge according to his word. It's amazing how we as Christians go through life and we oftentimes get so caught up on our own pride and self-righteousness that we look down our glorified nose at all the people and we make judgments. Now, here's the thing. People say, oh, you're being judgmental and legalistic. Here's the truth of that little phrase. Every person in this room is judgmental and legalistic. Not me, pastor. Yes, you. Because we all make judgments. We look at somebody and we make judgments. We have kids. If we have kids, there are certain kids we don't want to have our kids play with. There are certain places we don't want to go. There are certain, we all make judgments. Don't sit there and look down and say, well, I never judge anybody. I have a Greek phrase for that. Baloney. You say, well, I'm not legalistic. Well, here's the other half of that. If you're judging, you're judging by some sort of code, by some sort of standard, dare I say, some sort of personal law. For instance, I don't like liver mush. I judge that it is terrible. Thank you. And my, my, my law of that is that it's nasty, okay? But we make judgments. We're all legalistic in judgment. The key is making sure that if we do judge, we are right with God and not be a hypocrite. That's what Jesus was trying to teach in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, lest you be judged. Better to pull out the plank from your own eye when you go to pick the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. It's the word of God that judges all of us. We will be judged by the word of God. Not how much I think of you or how less you think of me. But we will be judged by the word of God, each and every one of us, this pastor included and especially. And the more you know of the word of God, the more you're going to be responsible for. And God is going to judge the earth according to his word. It'll be a sharp sword and that with it he will strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. A lot of people freak out over that phrase. That's basically speaking of the scepter that he will hold as ruler. He will hold that rod of iron and hold that sword and he will be then king of kings and lord of lords as we'll talk about in just a moment. It goes on to say, he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh, those of you who like tattoos, a name which is written king of kings and Lord of lords. He will reign. You say, oh, but pastor, I don't like to hear all about that wrath of God and judgment stuff. Listen, we already talked about this before. God in his nature is a God of love. He is love personified, but God is also just. And as such, and he is perfect, as such, he must judge sin. If he lets sin go unjudged, if he lets sin go undealt with, he could not be God. And so, yes, his nature is he's a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment and justice. And his second coming will emphasize that judgment and justice on an earth that has rejected him outright. The standard of that judgment will be that sword, the word. 
And people will either be welcomed into his kingdom or judged through his wrath by how they rejected him or whether they accepted him. Isaiah 9, 6, another Christmas passage we like to read. Speaking of this future baby in Isaiah's time that would be born and what he was going to be born for, it says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Look at his titles, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. As a matter of fact, the words Wonderful Counselor, there should not be a comma between them. In the Hebrew, it's one word, Wonderful Counselor. In other words, he brings truth and wisdom. He's also called the mighty God. He is God in the flesh. Everlasting Father. He and the Father are one. And Prince of Peace. Yes, he is going to come. He is going to be judge. And he's going to make war. But he's going to bring peace to this world finally. Can you imagine a world of peace? So the refrain of the song says, let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Notice the titles here as we finish up. It says, on, he, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords. He is sovereign. He reigns over the presidents of the United States. He reigns over King Charles III in England. He reigns and rules over Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He is sovereign over Xi Jinping in China. You name the world leader, no matter how powerful he or she thinks they are, Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And one day he will reign supreme. As we see these titles. Isaiah 9 goes on to say this. It says, Of the increase of his government, as king of kings and lord of lords, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You know, it seems like today we're waiting for the next war. China's threatening Taiwan. North Korea is threatening everybody else. We see the war in, in, in Ukraine. We see the drug wars at our border. And we see in our, own, in our own culture, families battling against families. Political parties against political parties. It's awful. But when Jesus comes, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Peace will reign. Isaiah says, upon the throne of David over his kingdom... Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the line of David. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem. He says to order it, his kingdom, and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Once he comes back, game over. Once he comes back, peace and justice. Equality and equity will rule the day. And I love this last line of Isaiah chapter 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What does that mean? That means God is ready and excited to do this. This is what all of human history is heading toward. 
This day, this time, this moment, when Jesus Christ will burst out of heaven, as he said in Matthew 24, like lightning flashes across the sky, that's how the Son of Man and his coming will be. And the entire earth will see it. He will judge those who have ravaged the world and raped the world and oppressed the world. And then he will raise up his kingdom, ruling from the throne of David as King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. I'm excited. Because when I go through difficulties, and I go through them, when I feel betrayed and hurt, when stuff doesn't work the way I want it to or expected to, when I fail and make mistakes, and I do them more than you realize, when it seems like I can't get ahead, and it seems like there's people stepping on me, or people think that I'm stepping on them, when I can't, when I can't meet the bills, or, or somebody in my life gets sick, when there's argumentation at church and at home and in business I know one day it's all going to go away and through Jesus Christ the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords we will have peace and so the last line of that joy to the world song or at least the last refrain let every heart prepare him room what do we do? Aaron spoke this morning in the reflection time of anticipating Christ's second coming. The trumpet could blow any minute. Our existence here can be over in a minute. Not just that, but not all of us are guaranteed of this afternoon, unfortunately. Whether by death, by rapture, when Christ comes back, we will meet him. The key right now is to live with that anticipation. The key right now is to open our hearts and minds and welcome Him in. Because what does Isaiah say elsewhere? He is at perfect peace whose mind is stayed on God. Jesus is coming back, y'all. Just as I'm standing here, I know for a fact He's coming back. And it may be soon. I don't know. I don't have dates for you. I'm sorry. If you go online and look for that and somebody tells you a date, then get out of there because it's nuts. But I just know he's coming back. And my job is to live for him, to walk with him, to honor him, and to do everything I can to bring my friends, family, and associates to him. And that's your job too. So Isaac Watson penning this wonderful song realize that it's necessary for all of us here to let our hearts prepare him room standing together as we close in prayer heads are bowed and eyes are closed Jesus for additional sermon resources and to find out who we are visit us online at westconcordchurch.com thanks for listening